Our passage is chapter 2 of Ephesians, 4 through 7, but I'm going to begin verse 1. You've got to have it in context. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. If you were choosing a diamond necklace and you were looking at various diamond necklaces, I could only assume it would be best to select that diamond necklace against the background, not of a light-colored or a white-colored background, but against a jet black velvet. So the contrast would bring out the gleaming nature of the necklace. In the same way, to fully appreciate the gleaming nature of the grace of God, it is best seen against our own depravity and spiritual deadness. And that's what we find in Ephesians 2 more clearly than any other passage in Scripture. He begins with these opening three verses summarizing the spiritual deadness and depravity. And then in verse 4, those, that great contrast, that grand canyon of contrast, but God. <coughs> we see these series of contrasts. We were dead in our sins, but God. We followed the ways of the world, but God. We followed the prince of darkness, but God. We lived in disobedience, but God. We lived in the passions of our flesh, but God. We gratified our sinful desires, but God. We were by nature children of wrath, but God. God did it all. When we were completely dead slaves under the wrath of God, God intervenes, makes us alive, raises us with Christ, seats us with Him in the heavenly places. Now, why would God do this when we were so hostile to Him, rejecting Him, disobeying Him in every way? Well, the passage tells us, beginning in verse 4, that He is rich in mercy toward us, that He has this great love, that He has this grace poured out, and this immeasurable kindness. Now, that cluster of four traits in the heart of God, mercy, love, grace, and kindness, that and that alone is the sole reason that you have been made alive in Jesus Christ. No other reason or cause, but God did it. Let's look at those four briefly. And four, he says, but God, 
being rich in mercy. Mercy would be God's love to the helpless, God's love to those who are hurting, God's love to the needy and the desperate who cannot take care of themselves. That's the mercy of God. And God's described here is, but God is rich in mercy. He doesn't have just a little bit of mercy towards you. Whenever you are hurting or in pain or struggling, God has rich mercy towards you. Do you see him that way? If you have mercy towards a child that is hurting, or maybe even a dog that is hurting, think about God's mercy being extravagantly better and bigger. He is the God who is rich in mercy. Not only is he a God of mercy, but we see in verse 4, because of his great love with which he has loved us, not just his love, but his great love. It's not a meager love. It's not a little bit of love. It's not a begrudging love. It is his great love with which he loved us. Now, God did not love you and me because we were so good. Because it says immediately after that, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So this is not because we earned it, not because we were working hard, not because we were trying our best. When we were completely hostile and enemies of God, he had this great love for us. Do you know this? That the Bible teaches that in eternity past, he set his love upon you. And he will never love you one bit more than he already loves you. And never love you one bit less than he already loves you. His love is a perfect, infinite love. That's the kind of love that God is. And it is so unheard of because there's nothing in human experience uh, to compare it with. But that is the love of God, his great love. That's why he made us alive and raised us up and saved us. Stephen Curtis Chapman has a great line the singer Stephen Curtis Chapman, when he said, In the gospel, we discover we are far worse off than we thought and far more loved than we ever dreamed. Now, I don't know if he had Ephesians 2 in mind, but that's a great summary of Ephesians 2. You're far worse off. You were far worse off than you ever thought, but far more loved than we could dream. Receive it and enjoy it. Now, when we think about the love of God, we've got to, to keep in mind this is not just a warm, affectionate feeling, though that's part of it. It is a costly, bracing, fierce love that sent his son to a bloody cross to pay for our sins. Romans 5 8. But God proves his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died and I took our place. To, to kind of get a feel for that, true story two young boys on the banks of the Mississippi River in Missouri after one of those horrific floods were playing on the other side of the sandbags that had been erected to stop the flooding. Well, they didn't realize it, but some of the river got through a breach in the, in the sandbags, and there was some quicksand where they were playing. And they get into it and are desperate. Some hours later, a rescue team searching for them uh, comes upon the youngest brother standing there in this sand, and they immediately ask him, where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. So apparently that older brother said, you know, let me uh, t uh, get in the quicksand. You stand on my shoulders in an incredible act of sacrificial love. Now, friends, when it comes to your sins, 
when it comes to your eternity, when it comes to your, your deadness and depravity and the wrath of God, Christ put you on his shoulders and he took your sin so you could live forever. It is sacrificial love, the love of God for you. It is costly love. And that shows the real extent of his love. Mercy, love, and now grace in verse 5 where he says he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now he's going to repeat this several more times in the passage as if he just cannot emphasize it enough. A little bit later he's going to talk about the immeasurable riches of his grace. And then next week we're going to see that for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works lest anyone should boast. He's going to emphasize so much the grace of God. You know, if I was an active parent today, this is what I think I'd do with my three-year-old or my six-year-old or my 10-year-old. I would make sure that they understood what the Bible talks about when it talks about grace. I would make sure that they understand that this means free gift, that this means you don't deserve it, you don't earn it, you don't work to, to, to measure up, you receive the free gift of God. I would go over and over that. I'd probably take this passage out at the dinner table or at bedtime. I would go over and over passages like this and make it clear. Do you know why? Not only is that how we're saved, but it is because there is nothing in human experience like this. We as human beings, all of our lives grow up with, I've got to earn this. I've got to earn this. I've got to earn this. Maybe you've seen the Marine's sword and the Words underneath it, and, and, and uh, no problem in that context. The words earned, not given. Uh, you've got to earn this sword if you're going to be a Marine. And that is true with the Marines. That is, in fact, true just about of all of life, except when it comes to getting into heaven. It's just the opposite. It is received, not earned. And that is hard for us humans. From the first grade and before, we're working hard to earn good grades, to earn that paycheck, to earn approval and favor. But when it comes to the spiritual life, the most important thing of all, we can never earn salvation because God's a holy God and He's a perfect God and we're not perfect. And so our only hope is a Savior who comes down and stands in the quicksand for us so that we can stand on His shoulders. He pays for our sin. It is received, not earned. It's given. It's a gift. It is grace. It's the most amazing thing. There is a classic movie. Some of you remember it 20 years ago, Saving Private Ryan, a, based on a true story in World War II where four brothers in one family get killed in the war, and Washington decides we can't let that fifth brother die. So they sent a team in to get him out of France. And Matt Damon plays the young Private Ryan, and Tom Hanks plays the captain leading the little platoon that goes in to rescue him. And at the end of the movie, after finally getting him out and almost getting him, you know, rescued, there is a fierce battle, and the captain who rescued him, played by Tom Hanks, is dying. And he is in this scene with Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon. And as he is dying... And as this young private realizes that this captain, probably in his 30s, gave his life for him, this dying captain says, earn this, earn this. 
And I take it to mean he is saying, you know, don't waste your life because I've given my life for you. You make your life count. At the end of the movie, 50 years later, this young private is now in his 70s. He goes back to Normandy for the first time at the graveside of this man who had given his life for him. He's got his wife. He's got his kids. He's got his grandkids in tow. And he kind of separates himself and goes up to that gravestone alone in a very emotional moment with gratitude that he had life because that man died for him. And he says, standing at that gravesite, he says, I didn't invent anything. I didn't cure any diseases. I worked on a farm. I raised a family. I lived a life. I only hope, in your eyes at least, I earned what you did for me. My friends, that is the human mindset, to earn what anybody does for you. And when it comes to the gospel, we have to humble ourselves and say to a holy God, God, I could never earn salvation. I need a Savior. And we cry out something like this, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Our only hope is the mercy and the grace of God. It is not earned. It is received. For those who are trying to earn their salvation, they don't get saved. Because those folks are really not trusting in a Savior. They're trusting in themselves to be good enough or religious enough. But what we need to do is to abandon trust in ourselves and put our trust in a Savior and receive the gift of God and, and, and enjoy His complete forgiveness and love. It's grace. It's grace. It's the free gift of God. He says here, by grace you have been saved. Now, by the way, if I can be just a little, I know we don't have real good memories of English grammar, but by grace you have been saved. That's a perfect tense in English and in Greek. Perfect tense to remind you, maybe this will be your last time you're ever reminded about the perfect tense. The perfect tense means completed action and continuing results. So what is God saying? By grace, you have been saved, completed action, done deal, continuing for all eternity in the future. You've been saved. It is already done. You are not on probation. You have received the grace of God, and you're secure in God's love. All righty, we've seen three of the four traits in the heart of God behind your salvation and mine. We've seen mercy, love, grace, and one more, kindness in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that is so emphatic. Do you know that the heart of God is is filled with kindness toward you? Do you see him that way? He's kind. He's so kind. He's the kindest person who has ever lived. He is kind in a way that we could never dream of to us. He's kind. Do you see him with a scowl looking at you? Oh, you got the wrong God. He is kind. He is loving, merciful 
gracious and kind. Let me just pause a moment when you think about passages like this. It talks about the incredible love and grace and mercy and kindness of God toward us who were sinners. And it just seems so unbelievable to us. And we've got a spiritual enemy who is out to get us to doubt God's goodness and love for us. In fact, church, the great satanic lie, the main lie, the lie that we first see in Genesis 3 when Satan first appears on the scene, the lie that we hear every day of our lives and that we will keep hearing is the lie that God, in fact, isn't good and doesn't really love us. The lie that you better look out for yourself because God's not going to. The lie that God is holding back things that you really need to be happy. The lie that God is a cosmic killjoy, depriving us of good. He doesn't love us. He's got this scowl towards us. That is the great lie of Satan. And it is so insidious. Nothing could be further from the truth. But if we believe that lie, you know what's going to happen? We're not going to trust God. We're not going to love God back. We're not going to worship God. We're going to hide from God. We're going to run from God. We're not going to trust Him with our lives. And we're going to miss out on all the, all the blessings that God has for us. Church, are you still believing the great lie of the universe about who God is? If so, if so, I would urge you, get down on your knees later today and repent and tell God, oh God, I'm so sorry that I have not been willing to listen to your voice about who you are, but I've been listening to the voice of the deceiver. And start believing this word, which is true. That's such a lie. Okay, because of God's great love, mercy, kindness, grace, he did three things for us, beginning in verse 6, 5. He made us alive together with Christ. Remember, we were spiritually dead in our sin. Physically, we've got you know, life and breath, but we were completely separated from the life of God, so we were dead spiritually. God makes us alive. The theological term for this is called regeneration. Something is dead, it's made alive. Lazarus was dead in the tomb, Jesus makes him alive. At one point, you were spiritually dead, and God gave you life. It's the same concept of Jesus in John 3 where we're born again. We're born again when God gives us life. So he made us alive together with Christ. Remember, everything that's good that's ever happened to us is in Christ, with Christ, because we're joined to Christ. So in the coming ages, he might up before that, and he raised, so he made us alive, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him, always with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, let me just pause there and let you process that. Uh, spiritually, God knows that you are already in the heavenlies. You're raised with Christ. You're made alive with Christ. You're seated with Christ. One day physically, after the resurrection of the body, your body's going to be joined to your spirit, but already God knows you're seated with Christ. Now, that means you're, you're already saved. It's not a question. You're not on probation. Um, you're safe in the loving arms of God. He's already wiped out all your sins because of the cross. You know, church, uh, here at Wood's Edge, we come from all different kind of backgrounds, and, and I like that. 
But some of you may have come from a background that really taught that you were kind of on probation and you had to measure up and earn it and avoid you know, real bad sins or you'd lose your salvation. That is such a, a travesty of the, of the grace of God. What the Bible teaches is that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, that all those sins were paid for by Christ forever, and you are completely forgiven. You have been saved. You're already made alive. You're already seated in heaven. You're already uh, raised up with Christ. You know, there are some verses that are troubling and puzzling because it sounds like you, you can lose your salvation. Uh, but, but that's not the point. They're either referring to not genuine believers, but mere professing believers, or they're talking about not the loss of salvation, but the loss of rewards. But what so many, many, from so many, many reasons, the Bible teaches, is that when you put your trust in a Savior and God wipes out all your sin, that it's done. It's gone for forever. Um, some people feel that's dangerous. Well, yeah, it is kind of dangerous. But grace is dangerous. But God takes the likes of Paul, David, and you, and he saves them. And if we really get the grace of God, it's not dangerous for us because we want to obey him and to please him with all of our hearts because we're so gratitude. Not because we're earning, but because we're grateful. In the spiritual life, theology is all about grace and gratitude. Some of you, as parents, you know you'd never take your love from your kids, never kick them out. And, and would you think that God is, is, a, is a worse parent than you, not a better parent than you? He's not. Okay, he makes us alive. He raises us up. He seats us with Christ, already done. And the whole ultimate purpose of all of this incredible gift of God in salvation is seen in verse 7. So that, here's the purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, because of what God does in our lives, taking sinners who are dead and giving us glorious salvation, it's going to be a testimony to all the universe that God is a God of love, grace, and kindness. It's going to magnify his goodness and grace. It is ultimately for the glory of God. You know, if you went to a, the Louvre in Paris, a million or so art objects, I'm sure, but the greatest art object in the Louvre is the Mona Lisa. It's the only work of art behind a glass cage, or at least the paintings behind a glass cage. It's got extra security in the room. The room will be crowded, people peering in, trying to see the Mona Lisa. And what's ironic is we don't know who that woman is. Scholars will speculate, but we don't know. We don't know her name. But it really doesn't matter because the point is not the woman who posed, but the painter who painted. It was da Vinci, who is the great artist. You know, when it comes to your salvation in mind, do you know how much credit you can take for that painting? Zero. It's all of grace. All of grace. But God rescues us. All the glory goes to the master painter. Sort of like Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer. At the end of each of his works, he put S-D-G, three Latin letters, standing for sola, del, gloria, only to God be the glory. And that is our whole life. Only to God 
be the glory for salvation. Church, in this few verses, we see the incredible love, mercy, grace, and kindness of God towards us in Christ. Do you see Him that way? Or, or let me ask you this, more and more do you see God that way? Or are you still cowering in fear, afraid of God? Are you still believing the great lie of the universe? You know, to see God the way He is, I think three things are crucial. I think God uses worship because when we gather together, God shows up and we sing our prayers to God. If, we're, if they're coming from the heart and not just the mouth, God transforms our image of Him and something powerful happens. So worship. Not occasionally, but, you know, every week that you can, you gather with God's people. Secondly, is that we ought to ask for it. Be like Moses in Exodus 34 when Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God showed him and revealed to him his goodness, his love, his grace, and compassion. And that ought to be our prayer. First thing you pray, probably, Lord, show me your glory. Show me how good you are, how loving you are. The third thing that I think is absolutely crucial is that we spend time every day in this book because it is here when all around us are the lies and the deceptions, especially of the enemy, that here we find the truth about who God really is. So those three things, be a worshiper, be asking God, Lord, show me who you really are, and thirdly, soak in the pages of Scripture so you can see the goodness and grace of God. Church, my prayer for us all is that more and more we'd see God in His great love for us. And we would just enjoy it. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe it wasn't clear to you that you get into heaven by a gift. Maybe you're still thinking that I could earn it being a good person. Well, friend, if, if that's been your thought, Get off that religious treadmill and get on God's plan, the grace plan. And say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can do that right now. Breathe a prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me and he'll save you. Please stand with me for our closing prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, with all my heart, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters. Lord God, that we would see you as incredibly in love with us, as the God of endless mercy, grace, and kindness, and that we would trust you, love you, and obey you because you are so good. You're so good. Lord, please, anybody here who's misunderstood you completely and never trusted you as Savior, would you please open their hearts to you now? and rescue them. Lord, thank you so very much. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.